Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of amazing articles to talk about. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Great news, everybody. New Atlas is reporting that injecting dead bacteria into tumors points to promising cancer treatment. And what's really wild about this is this is a century-old cancer treatment. Hmm. The idea is to help the immune system target and kill the cancerous cells. And already in some preclinical tests and some early human trials, we have already indicated that the treatment is safe and potentially effective. So that's where we've got a little bit of a keyword huh. to kind of hone in on. Right. Potentially. Important keyword, Important yeah. keyword yeah. for sure. But it all started in the late 19th century when a scientist by the name of William Coley thought there might be a weird relationship between bacterial infection and cancer remission. So he started experimenting with different bacterial formulations to treat cancer. And for much of the 20th century, his research was sadly relegated to a footnote in science history because his experiments had been somewhat erratic and they lacked any kind of standardization. But mm. more recently, a renewed focus on the complex interactions between our health and the bacteria that live inside us, because that's gotten real hot again, right? Like there was this mm -hmm. book called, I think, Dirt or Dirty by James Hamblin, which is all like, hey, we're over soaping ourselves. You know, the bacterial colonies we have on and in our bodies are actually more complex and might be doing more good and more bad than we realize. So mm -hmm. because of this renewed focus, a team of Australian researchers started reinvestigating Coley's ideas. Hmm. The treatment is made up of three components. Mineral oil and a surfactant make up an adjuvant known as Montanide ISA-51. And this is already licensed to use in humans and is already being utilized in several vaccines to boost an immune response. So they take this goo and they just add a third substance, which is heat-killed mycobacteria, the dead bacteria. So this overall formulation, which they're calling complete Freund's adjuvant, it has not yet been safely approved for any clinical treatment. But because of this new research, it's reporting the effects of CFA on several preclinical models and a small number of human patients. So the treatment involves directly injecting a novel slow-release emulsion of CFA right into the tumor. They've treated eight patients as part of this trial. They were all late-stage cancer patients. But in one case in particular, they were able to significantly improve the patient's quality of life. And the treatment reduced the amount of liquid around their lungs and was able to shrink one of their cancers. So it's mm. early, but this therapy is cheaper and easier to administer than a lot of the other immunotherapy innovations that have come about. They're estimating around $20 a dose, whereas the cost mm. of other immunotherapies can run to 40 grand. So this right. could make treatment accessible to patients in developing countries. And let's all hope it doesn't turn tumors into sentient zombies because dead bacteria just sounds like a real free thing to experiment with. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that like, they're basically giving you a vaccine for mycobacteria because that's what a vaccine yeah. is, is those chemicals plus the dead thing that you hopefully your body will recognize. But then somehow when the white blood cells are nearby, they're just like, cool, here's some work for me to do over here. Like it's just I a guess. question of drawing them to the site <laughs> yeah. rather than actually saying, here's a tumor cell for you to develop antibodies to. 
They're just like, hey, look around, see if maybe you could get something done. That's pretty much it. It's basically like, hey, here's something we know you're going to kill. So let's bring it to a site where we also want you to kill that stuff. And as a side effect, it's bait. It is. It's bait. And fingers crossed we make some progress because, boy, would that be a game changer. Yeah. I mean, the only trouble would be like if the tumor is super deep inside you and then you got to have like a really long needle to get to it. I'm just, you know, yeah. I'm thinking out loud of, of, of difficulties. I want them to overcome them. I'm True. just being a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll make sure to address that in the later stage trial. That's right. You know, maybe you can tweet it, get their attention. I know they're always taking <laughs> ideas from Twitter. Right? That's right. That's what scientists do. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com. It's titled Walt Disney's Radical Vision for a New Kind of City. Hmm. So the version of Epcot visitors encounter at Disney World, currently in the midst of its 50th anniversary celebrations, is actually hardly what Walt Disney imagined. In 1966, Disney announced his intention to build Epcot, which was an acronym for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, which (laughs) I had no idea. Whoa, like a biodome, basically. Yeah, and it was not to be a mere theme park, but as Disney put it, the creation of a living blueprint for the future unlike any place else in the world. An entire new city built from scratch. Wow. Unfortunately, Disney died later that year, and his vision was scaled down and then scrapped altogether. Uh, And then they just said, we'll make it a theme park. Like, we're not going to actually have people (laughs) live here, but, you know. Yeah, exactly. So the author of this article has been writing a book on urban idealism in America, and they're drawn to this planned community. So we're going to get a little bit of the backstory behind what it could have been. So, a captivating 25-minute film produced by Walt Disney Enterprises remains the best window into Walt's vision, and it's linked in this article if you'd like Mm -hmm. to look it up. In it, Disney, speaking kindly and slowly, as if to a group of children, (laughs) detailed what would become of the 27,400 acres or 43 square miles of Central Florida that he'd acquired. Echoing the rhetoric of American pioneers, he noted how abundance of land was the key. Here he could achieve all that could not be done at Disneyland, his first theme park in Anaheim, California, that opened in 1955 and had since been encroached upon by rapid suburban development. He proudly pointed out that the land on which Disney World would be built was twice the size of the island of Manhattan Hmm. and five times larger than Disneyland's Magic Kingdom. Among the remarkable components of Disney's Epcot would be a community of 20,000 residents living in neighborhoods that would double as a showcase of industrial and civic ingenuity, a running experiment in planning, building design, management, and governance. There'd be a thousand-acre office park for developing new technologies, and when, say, an innovation in refrigerator design would be developed, every household in Epcot would be the first to receive and test the product before it was released for the rest of the world. Hmm. An airport would enable anyone to fly directly to Disney World, while a vacation land would provide resort accommodations for visitors. A central arrival complex included a 30-story hotel and convention center, with the downtown featuring a weather-protected zone of themed shops. Epcot's more modest wage earners would be able to live nearby in a ring of high-rise apartment buildings, and there would be a park belt and recreational zone surrounding this downtown area, separating the low-density cul-de-sac neighborhoods beyond that would house the majority of residents. There would be no unemployment, and it was not to be a retirement community. Disney said, I don't believe there is a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities. 
And this is kind of interesting to me because it really feels like in modernity, we've kind of just given up <laughs> on any sort of idealism. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't say it, that's necessarily correct because especially here in Austin, Texas, we are seeing something similar with Elon Musk's solar neighborhood. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, but I I, I don't trust Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> and you trust Disney? <laughs> no, I don't trust Disney either. <laughs> it's never the sane ones who are planning <laughs> these mass cities. Yeah, and maybe we're coming on to a new cycle of this because back in the 1960s, the aspiration of building a new was much in the air. Mm. Americans were becoming increasingly concerned about the well-being of the nation's cities and were unsatisfied with the effort and consequences of urban renewal. Mm -hmm. Families continued to move into suburbs, but planners, opinion leaders, and even ordinary citizens raised concerns about consuming so much land for low-density development. Sprawl as a pejorative term for poorly planned development was gaining currency as a fledgling environmental movement emerged. Meanwhile, real estate entrepreneur Robert E. Simon sold New York's Carnegie Hall and with his earnings bought 6,700 acres of farmland outside of Washington so he could create rest in Virginia. 50 miles away, shopping center developer James Roos started planning Columbia, Maryland, and oil industry investor George P. Mitchell would soon take advantage of a new federal funding program and embark on establishing the Woodlands near Houston, which today has a population of 100,000 people. And like, I know the Woodlands. Yeah. It's, it's right I, in oh, Texas. Yeah. I've here. been there. I didn't area. realize it had such a history. Like, it's just a suburb. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Kingwood as well, which is another suburb that's also outside of Houston, was one of these planned communities that I think mm -hmm. Exxon dreamed up because they oh, needed mm. to have a place for the, all of their employees. And Right. Yeah. So these new towns hope to incorporate the liveliness and diversities of cities while retaining the intimacy of neighborhoods and other charms associated with small towns. Disney, however, didn't want to simply spruce up existing suburbs. He wanted to upend pre-existing notions of how a city could be built and run. An important innovation was the banishing of the automobile. <laughs> a vast underground system was designed Ooh. to enable cars to arrive, park, or buzz underneath the city without being seen. A separate underground layer would accommodate trucks and service functions, and visitors would traverse the entire 12-mile length of Disney World and all of its attractions on a high-speed monorail, far more extensive than anything achieved at Disney. Monorail, mm. monorail, monorail, monorail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, when you start bringing public transport into it and stuff like that, I'm like, okay, that sounds kind of sweet. I mean, we've been talking about an underground transit layer for decades, you know, yeah. and maybe this is why. Yeah. If, if you're you an know. American, you ever travel overseas, coming back to our public transportation is such a sadness. Just a massive depressing. Yeah. It's so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Today, Disney's utopian spirit is alive and well, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, you see it in former Walmart executive Mark Lohr's ambitions to build a 5 million person city called Telosa in a U.S. desert and blockchain's LLC proposal uh. for a self-governing smart city in Nevada. But more often, you'll see that efforts tap into the nostalgia of a bucolic past. Mm -hmm. The Disney Corporation did, in fact, develop a town during the 1990s on one of its Florida land holdings. Dubbed Celebration, yeah. it was initially heralded as an exemplar of the turn-of-the-century movement called New Urbanism, 
However, Celebration has no monorail or underground transport networks, no hub of technological innovation or policies like universal employment. Mm. So that sort of city of tomorrow, it seems, will have to wait. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> a retirement community. It's a bunch mm-hmm. of old people now. Go, well, I mean, you know, they don't have to drive because they can't drive. I suppose there's that. <laughs> but I mean, all of my sort of casual understanding of architecture, urban planning, and how cities built is it's all supposed to be very like organic. You know, Mm. you have to work with what you have. You have to work with the people you have, the culture, Mm -hmm. the resources. Like, Yeah, but that's a very, like, respecting your ecology and socio conditions. And if you are a single-minded billionaire who wants to control (laughs) an entire city and make Sims your life. Yeah, that's always the tricky thing is, like, if you don't put a hard fist on it, you end up with everybody just sort of doing what they want. Someone says, no, I want to have a car. I'm not going to take your public transport. And it all Mm -hmm. falls apart. But on the flip side, if you have that tight control, you've basically just created the modern version of a company town where everybody is fully indebted Mm -hmm. to you. And now you've got the potential for this horrible types of abuse that we saw back when company towns were very much a thing. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're screwed either way, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This one is from Massive Psy, and it's called That Stinky Armpit Smell. It's not you, it's your microbiome. So this ties back a little bit into what you were saying earlier, Angie. It's got a lot of (laughs) microbiome stuff in here. And I think most people are probably aware that your armpit stink is not really you. It's due to bacteria. But the article goes really in-depth into the actual chemistry of it. So Mm. first off, most body odor comes from two main species groups, Carinibacterium and Staphylococcus. And the way it works is that they have enzymes that break down our naturally odorless secretions, and it's those broken-up chemical byproducts that we actually can detect an odor from. Mm. And there's two classes of those chemicals that can be a byproduct of various bacterial reactions, and they are volatile fatty acids, or VFAs, and thioalcohols. So VFAs are responsible for a kind of smell the article calls an acidic twang, while thioalcohols contain sulfur and can run the gamut from a meaty, oniony aroma to a fruitier, less offensive smell. And, you know, not surprisingly, since different species have different enzymes and produce different chemicals in different quantities, your personal body odor is going to be greatly dependent on your particular blend of species. And that, in turn, is dependent on a lot of other factors. Scientists have found, for example, that a gene called ABCC11 codes for a protein that pumps those odor precursors to the armpit surface and a mutation in that gene will result in a person who doesn't pump out as many precursors and is just much less smelly overall and geographically this mutation is much more prevalent in east asian populations compared to european and african groups so Hmm. you know it's probably fair to assume i'm the smelliest person on this podcast (laughs) at least (laughs) in my natural undeodoranted state Men also tend to carry a wider (laughs) variety of carinibacterium than women, and thus their body odor tends to fall more into the fatty and acid-spicy profile, while women often have more, quote, sulfury cat urine notes, according to researchers who were in fact paid to do this. (laughs) (laughs) A recent study also found that people over 55 have more armpit bacteria than younger adults, And they speculate this may have something to do with the development of that musty old people smell commonly associated with elderly people. (laughs) 
uh, it should be noted, however, that all of these studies were done on people in their natural state. And introducing antiperspirants and deodorants into the equation changes things drastically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those are two different things, by the way. Antiperspirants reduce the amount of chemicals released by your body, including the moisture that the bacteria need to thrive, while deodorants either murder bacteria or target the byproducts of their reactions once they've already occurred. But most products on the market these days actually include both an antiperspirant and a deodorant together in one. So it's kind of a moot point. Mm. But Mm -hmm. the researchers did point out that there is a species of bacteria known as actinobacteria that has been shown to be resistant to current deodorants on the market. Oh, no. Yeah. So it may not be long before we're all hosting armpit superbugs. leads us to the topic of non-traditional treatments for body odor that won't trigger any ongoing bacterial evolution. On the medical side, there are actually prescriptions available that can reduce the activity of sweat glands. And there is also laser treatment that will just obliterate your sweat glands entirely if you want to go that route. (gasps) But there's also something known as a microbiome transplant championed by Dr. Christopher Callowert, also known on the internet as Dr. Armpit. (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Armpit's transplant procedure is actually pretty simple. It all takes place on the outside of your body. The patient simply takes a course of antibiotics to deplete the colonies already in their armpits. And then the doctor swabs a sample from the armpit of a naturally less smelly person and rubs it all over the armpits of the stinky person. You're kidding. That's all it takes? Yeah, and well, and then the stinky person has to not wash their armpits for a week to sort of let the new residents settle in and multiply. Yeah. And so far, 18 people have undergone the procedure with great success and results lasting for at least a month. This is like the poop transplant, but for armpits. But I mean, if I have to choose between a fecal transplant and an armpit transplant, I'd much armpit. rather the armpit transplant. Hundred yeah. percent. Oh yeah, so much less yeah. invasive. And I mean, do you even need a doctor to do this, or can you find a friend that has like really gentle bo and like just go armpit to armpit on them and be yeah. like, hey, why am I so excited about this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you could swab. You don't have to like bodily rub up against them. But yeah, if you have a friend who smells really nice and it isn't all just like cosmetics, and you feel like you have a problem, you could totally just ask and be like, hey, could I just like scrub your armpit with this rag for a minute? Don't ask why. <laughs> it's science. It's just science. You good? Yeah. I just want my armpits to be like your armpits. That's all I'm saying. That's right. It's a friendship symbol. <laughs> you don't need, you know, the blood packs and being blood brothers and blood sisters is really no longer hygienically feasible. And so this sure. new tradition of becoming pit buddies is going to go. flower and bloom. I, I, I'm calling it now. Yeah, I mean, you know, they always say blood is thicker than water, but you know what's thicker than both of those? Armpit sweat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> sweat is thicker than all of it. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. From JSTOR Daily, we have a pretty interesting look into the accidental invention of the color mauve. That <laughs> was something that needed to be invented? <laughs> I will make it make sense for you because this is a pretty cool article. So we're going to go all the way back to 1856, where a 19-year-old Londoner named William Perkin was trying to synthesize quinine from coal tar in his home laboratory. Uh, This already sounds like some kind of alchemical fiction, right? I'm going to make quinine Mm -hmm. from coal, 
But, you know, quinine is the only treatment for malaria. It mm. uh, was sourced from tropical tree bark and ridiculously expensive at the time. But coal tar, on the other hand, is cheap. It's the pollution left over from coal gas. And typically mm. they would just dump coal tar into the nearest river or canal. But it did oh. have a lot of chemical potential in its amino compounds, which is why this Londoner, William Perkin, was exploring making an ersatz quinine, which he utterly failed to do. But mm -hmm. he did figure out something else, and he invented a purple dye stuff that marked a beginning of a revolution, not just in dye, mm. but organic chemistry. It was the birth of an industry that has since given us a whole bunch of other colors, as well as things we know as drugs, explosives, fertilizers, mm. plastics. So mm. purple used to be the color of nobility, royalty. Yeah. And the source of this was the Eastern Mediterranean, where only two mollusk species had been harvested for its production since the era of the Phoenicians. And making this dye was painstaking, super stinky, and it almost drove these gastropods to extinction, which is why mm -hmm. they started to change the robes for cardinals to red. Oh, mm. yeah. It was a money-saving technique. <laughs> it was a cost-saving technique, exactly. But in the 1850s, the best source in the UK, which was then the world's textile capital, was murexide. And it was actually derived from bird crap. It was derived from guano. Mm. But it, quote, faded quickly in the heavily polluted sulfurous city air. Mm. So Perkin, he was the assistant to the head of the Royal College of Chemistry. And in the lab he'd set up in his parents' loft, he stained a piece of cloth in the brilliant purple solution he came up with after adding alcohol to the oily mess he'd created from the aniline in the coal tar. And then he realized that this color, which resisted the action of the atmosphere, light, and soap, had tremendous potential. So he initially sure. labeled it mauve, which is the French name for the mallow flower. Ta-da! You have an answer now. All right. Hmm. <laughs> so France is where dyers and textile printers eagerly adopted this new color, partly driven by the fact that there was a monopoly on a lichen-derived purple that was their only option. So they're like, yeah, anything's got to be better than this. And the mm -hmm. fact that he also was not able to secure a patent in France probably also aided to the adoption and spread of this technique. Mm. English and Scottish dyers and printers followed this trend, and his success and fortune sparked a rush of explorations into aniline across Europe. So there were a bunch of other dyes that followed in these footsteps. There was aniline red, which we now know as magenta or fuchsia, then aniline blue, Hoffman's violet, and a fast aniline black. And all from coal tar. That's basically what they were wearing, was a bunch of like nasty tar somehow distilled down into purple. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled, Largest Underwater Eruption Ever Recorded Gives Birth to Massive New Volcano. Huh. So we got a new one. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't go look at it. Uh, uh, it is underwater. But the researchers wrote in their paper, this is the largest active submarine eruption ever documented. Whoa. Yeah. The seismic rumbles of the ongoing event started on May 10th, 2018. Just a few days later, a magnitude 5.8 quake struck, rocking the nearby island. Oof. The signals pointed to a location around 50 kilometers from the eastern coast of Mayotte, a French territory and part of the volcanic Comoros archipelago, sandwiched between the eastern coast of Africa and northern tip of Madagascar. 
So a number of French governmental institutions sent a research team to check it out, and sure enough, there was an undersea mountain that hadn't been there before. Led by geophysicist Nathalie Fulet of the University of Paris in France, the scientists have now described their findings in a new paper. They used a multi-beam sonar to map an 8,600 square kilometer area of seafloor. They also placed a network of seismometers on the seafloor up to 3.5 kilometers deep wow. and combined this with seismic data from Mayotte. Between the 25th of February and May 6th of 2019, this network detected 17,000 seismic events from a depth of around 20 to 50 kilometers below the ocean floor, a highly unusual finding since most earthquakes are much shallower. So armed with this data, the researchers were able to reconstruct how the formation of the new volcano may have occurred. Below the new volcano, tectonic processes may have caused damage to the lithosphere, resulting in dikes that drained magma from a reservoir up through the crust, producing swarms of earthquakes in the process. Eventually, this material made its way to the seafloor where it erupted, producing five cubic kilometers of lava and building the new volcano. Yeah, the power, right? <laughs> well, and imagine if that had happened on the surface. Like, you're just living in your nice flat little <gasps> island, and all of a sudden, there's a giant volcano now in the middle of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean... that's a massive amount of size. <laughs> yeah. The researchers wrote, The volumes and flux of emitted lava during the Mayotte magmatic event are comparable to those observed during eruptions at Earth's largest hotspots. Mm-hmm. So... Keep an eye on that big old volcano, scientists, and uh, let us Keep know. Us posted. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Christopher McFadden at interestingengineering.com brings us this next one called Researchers Have Developed a New Kind of Unbreakable Glass. Ooh. And it's not strictly unbreakable, but it is three times stronger than conventional glass and has five times the fracture resistance. It was developed by researchers at McGill University and was inspired in part by the inner layer of mollusk shells, also known as nacre or mother of pearl. Mm. So Alan Ehrlicher, an associate professor in the Department of Bioengineering at McGill University, says that nacre is made of stiff pieces of chalk-like matter that are layered with soft proteins that are highly elastic. This structure provides mm. exceptional strength, making it 3,000 times tougher than the materials that compose it. So after examining its microscopic structure, his research team was able to first replicate the basic architecture using a mixture of glass flakes and acrylic. And this first material was still opaque, but then, according to postdoctoral researcher Ali Amini, they made a truly transparent composite by tuning the refractive index of the acrylic. And if you don't know what that means, you're not alone. And I think we're all going to remain ignorant because the article does not elaborate on it at all. But somehow they tuned the refractive index and magically made it clear. I mean, and it seems like wow. as far as I can tell, they basically made a glass and plastic alloy that still looks and mm -hmm. behaves like glass, but has some of those slightly bendier properties of plastic. And they point out that one of the reasons this new product is useful over, say, just using a straight plastic like plexiglass in the first place is that the hardness of the glass makes it more appropriate for things like smartphone screens, which wouldn't work with plastic, but may now be more shatter-resistant with this new tough glass, as they're calling it. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people who have shattered their iPhone screens, so yep. this might be useful. But then again, I don't know that Apple's going to like that. They kind of maybe <laughs> want their products to be shatterable so that you'll have to buy a new one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
But the really wild thing is that we may actually be recreating a technology that someone already discovered thousands of years ago. So uh, according to historical records written by Petronius during the reign of Tiberius Caesar from the year 14 to 37, a glassmaker brought a special drinking bowl to the Caesar to show off a new technique that he had perfected. According to Petronius, when the glass bowl was tested for strength, it dented rather than shattered, and it was clear, and the inventors swore that he was the only person who knew the secret of how to make it so Rome would have a monopoly on this great new export. And Tiberius said to himself, you know, this amazing new material is going to be so valuable, it's probably going to be worth more than gold and silver. And actually, our whole economy is based on gold and silver. And you say you're the only person in the world who knows the secret of this stuff. I'm just going to have you executed instead. And so that's what he did. <laughs> he just killed the guy, and that was the end of it. So we don't have any further records of how this guy may have created this sort of magic, glass-like, flexible material or whatever it really was. But we are pretty sure it happened the way Petronius described it based on, you know, the reliability of his other histories. Uh, you know, I always like a good story where it turns out we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. And people in ancient times had some really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm very much on board with that. I mean, whether it's sticking dead bacteria into a tumor or, you know, <laughs> we've done yeah. some of these things before. Let's go back and revalidate them. Yeah. Well, and also the idea of like some of this stuff was documented at, say, the library at Alexandria, and we've just gone and destroyed it. And how how much of a problem yep. are we causing by documenting everything where they're like, we're not going to be able to find your magic nacre glass material because we're looking at all of these posts about people's breakfasts. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, guys. The Walrus has a really cool article called The Cactus That Came Back from the Dead, which is a little misleading because this really goes into conservation efforts. And it's kind of hmm. summed up well in this subhead. When a plant barely exists in the natural world, but lives on your windowsill, is it really endangered? Hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah, chew on that. So it starts off by going into this particular cactus. It's called the Mammillaria tizontle. And what's unique about this cactus is they really prefer to just be left alone. They don't have any hmm. fancy flowers. They don't have a huge size. There's no culinary value. It just doesn't play an outsized role in its ecosystem. And it's not even really pretty. But in the wild, it has only ever been found on Tizantle rock. Hmm. But this cactus is actually plentiful as long as you're looking everywhere else in the world and not its native habitat. Hmm. And while habitat destruction is a prime driver of cactus extinction, Poaching adds additional strain, and cacti and orchids are huge in the black market plant trade. In 2020, Italian officials busted a historically expensive illegal shipment from Chile of over a thousand rare species of cactus valued at more than 1.2 million U.S. dollars. I mean, wow. insane. Whoa. There is a guy named Mark Fryer, who's the former lead propagator at the cactus wholesaler C&J Cactus in California, and he's grown these M. Tazantle cacti from a batch of seeds that he got from a German nursery. He does not hmm. approve of people buying poached cacti, but he does know that he competes with this black market because these wild specimens often hold a greater allure. But Fryer sees his own work and all the cacti species he has on seven and a half acres of growing area as a tool to prevent poaching. Yeah, flood the market. But a lot of people have issues with ex situ conservation, which is outside its native habitat. 
Some people call it a materialist, reductivist version of modern Darwinism. <laughs> it's almost like having, a, you know, zoos full of polar bears in a world where their northern habitat has melted. And so when you mm -hmm. frame it this way, ex situ conservation starts to look a lot like extinction light. Yeah, I mean, it's not cool to say it's fine to destroy the polar bear's habitat because we're going to put them in a zoo. But I think if, you know, you're faced with the inevitability of the destruction of their habitat, it's better to save them than to not save them. Yeah, but is that version of what you're saving, you know, can it really be called the same thing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we've domesticated dogs and cats, but the dogs we have in our house are very different than the wild ones that are mm -hmm. roaming around. Yeah, I don't think a polar bear would be very happy in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just turn the AC way, way down. Yeah. <laughs> It also makes me think, like, in terms of certain types of plants and certain types of animals that, you know, may go in real world extinction events that then just become dependent on how trendy they are with consumers. And I kind of feel like that's sort of a sad existence in its own right. You oh, know? yeah. Like the Chihuahua thing that happened after the Taco Bell and Paris Hilton era. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, every, every breed of show dog, practically. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have chihuahua-sized polar bears. <gasps> One can dream. We can hope. No, it's a bad idea. In situ, Angie. What are you talking about? <laughs> 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 all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include This Parasite Turns Plants into Zombies, Brain Cleaning Sleeping Cap Gets U.S. Army Funding, and The Martians of Budapest. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and like the fact that there are no ads, you can support us in that endeavor at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. We will be off next week for a brief hiatus, but have no fear, we will return on the 22nd. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>